0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, number eight. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and this episode is an introduction to the Columbian Exchange, recorded on February 10th, 2021, in New Orleans. Before we get to the fun part, I want to thank all our new listeners. Well, maybe that is the fun part. We've had more than 600 downloads since inception, which far exceeds my expectations. I figured if I had a thousand in the first few months, it would be amazing. My hope is that there is an audience for telling history without grinding an ax, or at least without forcing a connection between events in the past and today's politics. The percentage of undergraduates majoring in history has fallen by about 75% since 1970, and it has collapsed since 2007. I cannot help but wonder if the decline in part is because the teaching of history in some places by some people has become so tediously political, rather than fun and interesting. So I'll try and keep it fun and interesting. This episode is an introduction to the Columbian Exchange, and it should appeal especially to listeners who love factoids. In 1492, the entire human population of the planet Was in the vicinity of 450 to 600 million people, the gap perhaps explained in part by the controversy over the pre Columbian population of the Western Hemisphere. We do know that by 1500, the population of Europe had not grown on a net basis since 1300. There was plenty of hunger in most places outside of the Western Hemisphere and every reason to believe that humans in the Eastern Hemisphere had reached something of a limit in their capacity to grow or capture calories faster than their need to consume them. Now I'm going to break my promise and roll out some math. On the very cool website, ourworldindata.org, one can find a graph of obviously estimated human population from 10,000 B.C. to the projected population in 2100. Per the weirdly precise figures on that site, which apart from their faux precision look pretty plausible, from Common Era Year Zero to 1500, the world's population grew from 188.24 million people to 461.37 million people. The Our World in Data team seems to be low counters regarding the Western Hemisphere population. That is a compound annual growth rate of just under six hundredths of a percent, which probably sounds like an interest rate if you're younger than, say, 30. By contrast, from 1500 to 1800, the period after Columbus but before the confounding influences of the Industrial Revolution, mechanization of food production, and big improvements in public health, the world population grew from that 461.37 million people in 1500 to 989.82 million, or a compound annual growth rate of 0.25%. That is obviously more than quadruple the rate that prevailed during the entire run from the birth of Christ to 1500. And of course, the quadruple growth rate is in spite of a catastrophic early setback, the demographic disaster in the Western Hemisphere after old world diseases killed off at least 80% of the native population. 1492 was, it turns out, an inflection point, the first curve in the hockey stick of human population growth. The location of population also changed radically. In 1492, the world's biggest cities clustered in the tropics, all but one within 30 degrees of the equator. They were Beijing, Vijayanagar, sorry to botch the pronunciation, in Southern India, Cairo, Hangzhou, and Nanjing in China, Tabriz in Iran, Gaur in India, Tenochtitlan, capital of the Aztec Empire, Istanbul and perhaps Gao in the Songhai Empire in West Africa and Cusco, capital of the Inca Empire. By 1900, every city in the top 10 will be in Europe and the United States except Tokyo, which Charles Mann called the most westernized of eastern cities. Those changes all derive from the interhemispheric transmission of diseases, food crops, populations, cultures, and technologies in the years after Columbus's famous first voyage. That transmission is now known as the Columbian Exchange, a term invented in 1972 by the famous biological historian Alfred W. Crosby, Jr. of the University of Texas at Austin, Hook'em Horns. Here's how Charles Mann summarized it in the introduction to his book, 1493. 1493. Babies born on the day the Admiral founded La Isabella, January 2nd, 1494, came into a world in which direct trade and communication between Western Europe and East Asia were largely blocked by the Islamic nations between and their partners in Venice and Genoa. Sub-Saharan Africa had little contact with Europe and next to none with South and East Asia and the Eastern and Western hemispheres were almost entirely ignorant of each other's very existence. By the time those babies had grandchildren, slaves from Africa mined silver in the Americas for sale to China. Spanish merchants waited impatiently for the latest shipments of Asian silk and porcelain from Mexico, and Dutch sailors traded cowrie shells from the Maldive Islands in the Indian Ocean for human beings in Angola, on the coast of the Atlantic. Tobacco from the Caribbean ensorcelled the wealthy and powerful in Madrid, Madras, Mecca, and Manila. Group smoke-ins by violent young men in Tokyo would soon lead to the formation of two rival gangs, the Bramble Club and the Leather Breaches Club. The Shogun jailed 70 of their members and then banned smoking. Columbus's signal accomplishment, in the words of Alfred W. Crosby, was to re the seams of Pangea. Close quote. In a sense, every episode of this podcast will be influenced by the Columbian Exchange. There will be future episodes on the impact of the Columbian Exchange on specific areas. Rather than burying you in factoids, however cool, for weeks on end... I'll pop in discussion of the Columbian Exchange among others that tackle the first exploration of North America by Europeans during the 115 years between Columbus and Jamestown, and probably well thereafter. This episode will look at the Columbian Exchange from altitude, with the deeper dives to come in the future. The most immediately consequential outputs of the Columbian Exchange were diseases primarily from the old world to the immunologically defenseless populations of the new. Henry Dobbins, one of the pioneering high-counter scholars who in the 1970s reckoned much larger populations of Indians before Columbus than had been the received wisdom theretofore, wrote that, quote, Before the invasion of peoples of the new world by pathogens that evolved among inhabitants of the old, Native Americans lived in a relatively disease-free environment before Europeans initiated the cultural exchange of germs and viruses. The peoples of the Americas suffered no smallpox, no measles, no chickenpox, no influenza, no typhus, no typhoid or parathyroid fever, no diphtheria, no cholera, no bubonic plague, no scarlet fever, no whooping cough, and no malaria, close quote. Disease-free certainly overstates it, relatively being a very important word. We will see in future episodes that there were plenty of native pathogens. It's just that few of them were comprehensively lethal the way the old world bugs were. The Western Hemisphere was still by comparison a veritable paradise on Earth. Perhaps to be remembered wistfully by those of us who have lived through the COVID-19 pandemic in the strictest sense, the most up-to-date negative consequence of the Colombian exchange. Regardless, we know from the earliest stories of encounters between Europeans and Indians from Columbus to Verrazano and others, that the Indians were just very attractive, or at least seemed so to the Europeans. Disease takes a toll and often leaves visible physical damage, such as the pox part of smallpox. So in addition to being well-fed and naked, the Indians probably looked so good because they were so very rarely sick. Anyway, when these diseases washed ashore and Europeans and Africans and the animals they brought, they killed between 80 and 95 percent of the Indian population within the first 150 years. David Noble Cook, a historian and demographer and author of Born to Die, Disease and New World Conquest, estimates that in the end, the region's least affected lost 80% of their populations, those most affected lost their full populations, and a typical society lost 90% of its population. There were witnesses for this depopulation. If you listened to episode two of this podcast, you may remember the stories of the pandemic that struck the Dawnland in the years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth or the depopulation of the Mississippian tribes, following Hernando de Soto's devastating romp through the American South. There are several things that might be said about the horrific impact of Eastern Hemisphere diseases on the Indians of the Western Hemisphere. First, the rolling pandemic so emptied the land and weakened Indian society and culture that the second wave of European settlers, after the first explorers, developed the mistaken impression that there had never been very many Indians and that they were primitive and poor naturally. In other cases, even the first explorers to reach a tribe got there too late to see the true culture. Disease had raced ahead of them, having been transmitted down a chain by Indians who had encountered Europeans. Charles Mann called this error of misimpression Holmberg's mistake. And we talked about it at length in the first two episodes of the podcast. Second, the Europeans did not at that stage want the Indians to die. This was not because 16th century Spanish settlers were great humanitarians or cared deeply about the Indians per se. With a couple of famous exceptions, they did not. The Spanish wanted Indians to live so that they could convert them and, well, enslave them, like the guanches and the canaries. There was a lot of gold and silver to be mined and eventually a lot of sugar and tobacco to be farmed. The seeming fragility of the Indians was frustrating for the Spanish project in the Americas, at least in its first century. And the collapse of the Indian population would quickly lead to the expensive and dangerous importation of slaves from Africa. The same thing would happen in the British Tidewater colonies of North America 150 years later. Indians would die off from disease or not otherwise pan out as slaves, so Europeans would slowly turn to African slaves. There will be more to say on this subject in future podcasts, too. Third, and this is the tough bit to swallow, Indian civilizations were doomed, whether it was Christopher Columbus or the Spanish or the Portuguese or some other people's, who would inevitably connect the hemispheres. They were perhaps not born to die, as the title of Cook's book suggests, but they and their pre-Columbian civilizations were, by and large, destined to die. Eventually, some expedition from the Eastern Hemisphere would have found the Western Hemisphere, spewed its viruses and bacteria all over the place, and then, Somewhere between 80 and 95% of the Indians would have died. It might have been the Chinese if they had renewed Blue Ocean exploration or the Russians crossing to the Pacific Northwest or the English or the Swedes or the Dutch or the Arabs. No matter who it was, no matter when it was, the Indians would have died en masse and the discoverer, air quotes again, would not have known why. There are therefore many grounds in which to condemn Columbus and the Spanish who followed him, but destruction of the original Indian civilizations was pretty much hardwired. Now, lest you arise as one and accuse me of being a Eurocentric apologist for the intentional abuse and exploitation of the Indians who survived the pandemics, rest assured that no such defense is intended you might be wondering why diseases did not flow from the new world to the old. Well, the most likely explanation is that the earliest settlers across the Bering Land Bridge seemed to have done away with the large mammals in the Western Hemisphere, which did not evolve with large primates and were unprepared to encounter Homo sapien. The Indians, therefore, did not have large animals to domesticate and invite into their homes, which meant they created far fewer opportunities for ugly diseases to jump from animals to humans. They fundamentally lived in a disease-light environment until that day on Watling's Island. Well, except for one disease. For ages, scholars argued over whether syphilis came from the New World. Syphilis was thought to have first appeared in Europe in the years after Columbus, brought by his crew. Remember when the Indians of Hispaniola feted his crew and, quote, satisfied their other wants? We are a family podcast, so we will let the implication dangle there. But the historical claim was that some of Columbus's men joined the military campaign of Charles VIII of France against the Kingdom of Naples in 1495. There, they sported with the local professional ladies who spread it around the French army. When the exposed mercenaries went on other missions, the disease spread very quickly, reaching Hungary and Russia by 1497, Africa, the Middle East, and even India by 1498, China by 1505, and Japan by 1569. The French even took the blame for this, since syphilis was known for years by many people as the French disease. There was a competing theory that syphilis had always existed in the old world, but had been locked up in some reservoir. You know, such as a bat or a pangolin. Only not. The old world theory of syphilis persisted for two reasons. First, modern researchers found it hard to believe that a few men from Nina and Pinta could have spread the disease so widely and so quickly. Perhaps those researchers lacked imagination. Second, there were a few European skeletons from before Columbus that showed some of the same scarring that syphilis causes in bones. Modern science is mostly disposed of the old world explanations and places the origin of syphilis fairly definitively in the Western hemisphere. There is a fairly recent paper that argues otherwise, and I'll put a link in the show notes. We report, you decide. Now you might say syphilis, big whoop, And that would not only be true today, but it would have been true even by 1700, at least by the standards of 1700. No, it was not an easy disease, but compared to the nasty pathogens from the Eastern Hemisphere, syphilis was by then a walk in the park. When it first hit Europe, though, syphilis was a very nasty disease. It was frequently fatal. And if it didn't kill you, it caused genital ulcers, severe rashes and pain, big old tumors, and dementia. The wider syphilis spread, the more opportunity it had to mutate, and it eventually became more benign and less fatal. So that actually sometimes happens. As many people as the exchange to diseases killed quickly, the transfer of foods from one hemisphere to the other as part of the Columbian Exchange had an even greater impact on human population, this time promoting growth. The Columbian Exchange transformed the global supply of food in two ways. Western Hemisphere staples, developed over thousands of years by indigenous breeders, were imported to the much more populous old world to transformational effect. And Eastern Hemisphere crops like sugar and rice went the other way and found climates and soils where they grew explosively. Western Hemisphere crops like potatoes, maize, sweet potatoes, cassava, beans, and squash, delivered more calories and better nutrition to Eastern Hemisphere diets. No old world grain packs more food energy into an acre than maize. One can live off potatoes and butter alone indefinitely. I suppose if you are a survivalist or a super committed hyper that could be A handy bit of information. The big advantage of the New World staple crops, however, is that they can often be grown in Old World climates and soils that were not productive for the cultivation of Old World grains. Crosby, writing in 2003, wrote, "...the great advantage of the American food plants is that they make different demands of soils, weather, and cultivation than Old World crops." and are different in the growing seasons in which they make these demands. In many cases, the American crops do not compete with old-world crops, but complement them. The American plants enable the farmer to produce food from soils that prior to 1492 were rated as useless because of their sandiness, altitude, aridity, and other factors. Close quote. This is what investment bankers call growth synergies in particular and perhaps ironically africa and its peoples have been among the greatest beneficiaries of new world crops maize is grown all over africa and some african countries is the single most important source of calories cassava which is not such a big deal in rich countries is even more important in africa than maize which frankly blows me away insofar as i don't believe i've ever eaten it Per a fascinating paper by Nathan Nunn and Nancy Kian, I'll put a link in the podcast notes, the top 10 cassava-consuming countries are all in Africa. Five of the top 10 sweet potato-consuming countries are in Africa. The importance of New World crops to the African diet is so profound that the population of Africa is much larger today and better fed only on account of them. According to Nunn and Kean, the potato, may have had the single greatest impact on the Eastern Hemisphere. They pinned the dates of the adoption of the potato in old world countries, and then compared pre- and post-adoption differences in population growth compared to countries that did not adopt it. They found that adoption of the potato explained 12% of a country's population growth thereafter, and that almost half of the post-adoption increase in urbanization and related GDP is explained by the potato. There are also New World foods that do not deliver very many calories but have had a massive impact on the quality of life of ordinary people all over the world. The most important are capsicum peppers, tomatoes, cacao, and vanilla. Capsicum anum, which was domesticated in Mesoamerica, has led to bell peppers, cayenne peppers, and of most important to Texans, jalapenos. Capsicum frutescens, originally from the Amazon, give us tobacco. Paprika, the spice made from grinding dried capsicum pepper, first appears in Hungary in 1569, and fans of Hungarian food, not that I know any personally, even today regard it as the national spice. Capsicum peppers arrived in Europe and Africa by 1493, which is basically immediately and India by 1542. Per Nun and Kin, the capsicum has also had a significant impact on the cuisine of many other countries. In South and Southeast Asia, some form of pepper is used as the base of almost every dish. In China, cuisine in the Southwest is defined by uses of certain chili peppers. In Korea, a side dish of spicy kimchi is consumed with every meal. And of course, capsicum peppers are some of the most vitamin-rich foods to be had. Tomatoes originated in an unidentified wild ancestor from South America. According to man, half a dozen wild tomato species exist in Peru, all but one inedible, producing fruit the size of a thumbtack. Botanists today believe they were first cultivated about a thousand years before Columbus. Man again. To botanists, the real mystery is how the progenitor of today's tomato journeyed from South America to Mexico, where native plant breeders radically transformed the fruit, making them bigger, redder, and most important, more edible. Why transport useless wild tomatoes for thousands of miles? Why had the species not been domesticated in its home range? Close quote. It's a mystery. Tomatoes took longer than other New World crops to be cultivated in Europe, in part because they are not easily transported and do not last very long once off the vine. The first European text to mention tomatoes as food to be eaten with oil, salt, and pepper is dated 1544 and, not surprisingly, Italian. That's how I like to eat them myself. Cultivation spread in Italy, Spain, and France in the late 16th century, but tomatoes did not really take off as a global food until they could be preserved by canning, which mechanized in the late 19th century. Notwithstanding the late start, the tomato caught up quickly and today has been integrated into so many different diets around the world that it provides more nutrients and vitamins in absolute terms than any other fruit or vegetable. That bears repeating. The tomato is so ubiquitous today that it provides humans with more nutrients in the aggregate than any other fruit or vegetable, period. And to thank for that boon, we have ancient Indian botanists in Mexico who unlocked the promise of a barely edible plant from more than 2,000 very treacherous miles away. If that doesn't boggle your mind, your mind can't be boggled. Finally, we would be remiss if we did not mention cacao and vanilla, both of which have immeasurably improved the lives of billions of people. The Aztecs were cultivating cacao in the Yucatan before the Spanish arrived, and Columbus brought back specimens of cacao pods to Ferdinand after his second voyage. The Spanish did not cultivate it in the Old World until 1590, but thereafter the market for chocolate grew throughout Europe. Chocolate drinks first emerged as a rare luxury consumed by aristocrats at court, but by the end of the 1600s were a regular luncheon beverage of the middle class in England. Today, seven of the top 10 producers of cacao beans are in the old world, and four of those are in Africa. Ivory Coast produces seven times the cacao of Brazil, which is the leading New World producer. Vanilla is, in some respects, even more interesting than chocolate. As Keen put it, vanilla is a crop that, despite being completely unknown to the old world prior to 1492, and despite having little nutritional importance, has become so widespread and so common that in English, its name is used to refer to anything that is plain, ordinary, or conventional. Vanilla comes from the tropical forests of eastern and southern Mexico, Central America, and northern South America. It is from the fruit of vanilla planifolia, the only species of the orchid family that produces edible fruit. As most of you no doubt know, but I did not, vanilla pods don't really smell or taste like vanilla. The pods need to be fermented to produce the vanillin that drives the unique vanilla flavor. Go fermentation. By the end of the 1500s, the Spanish were importing vanilla and flavoring chocolate with it. Spanish King Philip II would have a vanilla chocolate drink as a nightcap, which strikes me as a darn good and probably much-needed sleep aid, given all his many troubles. Vanilla turned out to be very difficult to domesticate outside of its native habitat because it apparently requires just the right pollinators. That problem was finally cracked in the 1830s when a Belgian botanist figured out how to hand-pollinate vanilla orchids. Today, nine of the ten largest producers of vanilla are old-world countries, with Indonesia producing six times as much as Mexico, the only Western Hemisphere country to crack the top ten. Now let's look briefly at the old-world crops that flourished when cultivated in the new. The flip side. Nunn and Kian calculated that the Western Hemisphere contains about 26% of the world's arable land which suggests that if more than 26% of the global production of a crop comes from the Americas, it is relatively more productive as a transplant to the new world. The old world crops that have done particularly well under the new world conditions are sugarcane, soybeans, barley, bananas, oranges, coffee, and sorghum. Nunn and Kean summarize why so many crops particularly flourish outside their original hemisphere. The fact that old world crops flourished in the new world and new world crops flourished in the old is not just coincidence. It is in part the result of two aspects of the Columbian Exchange. First, both the new world and the old world contain continents that lie on a north-south orientation and span nearly all degrees latitude. Because climates change most drastically as one moves north and south, rather than east and west. This helped to ensure that the new world plants could find an old world climate similar to their native climate and vice versa. Second, there was also a benefit that arose from the two regions being isolated for thousands of years. The isolation caused separate evolutions of plants, parasites, and pests. Therefore, transplanted crops often flourished because they were able to escape the pests and parasites that had co-evolved with them in their native habitat. Because of the greater prevalence of pests and parasites in tropical regions, tropical plants benefited most from transplantation. This partially explains why Today, 57% of the production of coffee is produced in the New World, and why 98% of natural rubber is produced in the Old World from transplanted rubber trees originally from the New World. The Americas currently produce 84% of the world's soybeans, 65% of its oranges, and 35% of its bananas, close quote. This boon is obviously the beneficial side of a phenomenon that can get quite ugly— Invasive species such as kudzu thrive as well, and pests that hop along from one hemisphere to the other can devastate an ecosystem, as any fan of the American chestnut well knows. Since reading about the Columbian Exchange, I cannot help but think of the many nice things in our lives today that come from it. I wrote a good bit of this episode in the Cuban Creations cigar bar on Toulouse Street in the French Quarter in New Orleans. My cigar... Is quintessential New World, even if I don't smoke it through my nose in the original Cuban Indian fashion. I paired it with an IPA made with hops and barley, both Old World. And then an old fashioned. The maize for the bourbon is New World. The sugar is Old World in origin, but was only inexpensive in the 1880s when the cocktail was invented because of New World cultivation, originally under brutal conditions. The orange and cherry are old world, and the Angostura bitters were invented by the Surgeon General of Simon Bolivar's army to combat mostly old world tropical diseases in the service of overthrowing the Spanish colonial governments. Many a life's pleasures flow directly from history's most violent moments. Now all of this is just a tiny fraction of what might be said about the influence of the Columbian Exchange— We will say a lot more about it in future podcasts, particularly regarding those influences that had the greatest impact on the history of the Americans, including the evolution of slavery and some of its ugliest forms. For example, the biological success of sugar in the Western Hemisphere, coupled with the tremendous demand for it from the Eastern Hemisphere, was the first big catalyst for slavery in the New World and, as we have seen... The diseases spread from the Eastern Hemisphere ensured that the slaves would not, over the long term, be Indians. The goal of this episode, therefore, is not to close the matter of the Columbian Exchange, but to set the stage for thinking about it in the context of the development of North America, which is the main subject of this podcast series. This seems like a good place to stop today. In the next few episodes... We will look at the first voyages to explore North America, starting with Juan Ponce de Leon and the discovery of Florida. If you like what you hear, it would be great if you subscribed in your podcatcher of choice and by all means rate it five stars, sincerely or otherwise. As always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. And if you've heard an old dog snoring in the background, that's Eli, who's been with me the entire time. Yet another product of the old world come to the new. Thank you again for listening.